Well, church family, before we dive into God's word, I do have a couple of announcements. The first one is, please continue to pray for our lead pastor, Alan Hanna, as this week and next, he is on a missions trip to Gabon, Africa with his daughter, Alex. So if you guys have not been to Gabon or don't know anything about Gabon, Gabon is in the rainforest and it's far west of Africa, right next to the coast. I've had the privilege, actually my family and I have had the privilege to go there and minister to those people. And I will tell you, walking through Riverview Park on the north side here of Pittsburgh is totally different than walking in the rainforest of Gabon. We actually had to take machetes just in case there were snakes and to get through the uh, bushel. So continue to pray for him and, his, him and his daughter and also our former missions pastor, Glenn Hanna, as they travel to Gabon to participate in a prayer conference. And also, the final um, notification before we dive into God's word is this. Don't forget to set your clocks tonight. Do know that tomorrow morning when you wake up, it'll be an hour faster than it is today. Look, there's good news and bad news in that. The bad news is we're going to lose an hour of sleep, but the good news is we will gain an extra hour of daylight. So for those of you who are like me, who have a dog, my dog appreciates this time of the year because he gets to go out just a little bit later than normal. So all you dog lovers, enjoy this extra hour with your pet. So with all that said, let's dive into God's word. On August 31st, 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. In total, 423 people died. Now, one's immediate assumption was the crash had to be a result of either thick, thick fog or technical malfunction. But during the investigation, it was determined that the cause was human pride. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence and could have avoided the crash. But according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other because each was too proud to yield first. And by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. See, unfortunately, this scene plays out all too often in the lives of believers. We become the captain of our respective ships and the main character of our story and expect everyone else to play by our roles. And by the time we come to our senses, long-term relationships and friendships are broken, marriages are falling apart, congregations are divided, and the watching world doesn't know if we are believers or deceivers. And it's all because of the absence of humility. Now, to be fair, every person has a pride problem because our sinful human nature is self-centered. Plus, in most cases, our culture teaches a distorted view of humility. See, it teaches humility means having low self-esteem, feeling less important than others, or lacking confidence. But see, that's why it's so important to have a biblical understanding of what Christ-like humility actually is. Because without it, we end up looking in the wrong places for humility. 
See, humility is not found in a facial expression. Humility is not the inability to accept a compliment without uh, putting yourself down. And finally, humility is not discrediting your gifts and talents by casting them all on God. Have you ever met someone and you say, man, you did an excellent job up there. Then they begin to discredit themselves and say, no, it wasn't me. I just woke up this morning. I found myself on a platform and God just began working in me. That's not what humility is. Oftentimes, these are actions from people who struggle with pride trying to camouflage it as humility. So the question is, what is a biblical understanding of Christ-like humility? So for this teaching, I'm going to define Christ-like humility as this. Christ-like humility is an accurate understanding of both who God is and who you are. And today, we're going to examine just a portion of the second chapter of Philippians because here it highlights three key attributes we're to adopt in order for us to be Christ-like. And while each attribute is worthy of complete exegesis, what we're going to do this weekend is we're going to deep dive into Christ-like humility, which is why I titled this week's message, When Down is Up. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to share with your people what you laid on my heart. God, I consider it a privilege and an honor to be chosen by you to share your word. So, Heavenly Father, during this time, I pray that I totally increase and allow the Holy Spirit to decrease. Even through my preparation, Lord, and even through my study, I ask that I surrender my faculties to you. And Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit goes out and touch each and every heart. Prepare those hearts for good ground so when your seed comes, it can begin to take root. So, Lord, I pray that you forgive me for any sin that I may have committed. And I pray, God, that through this entire ordeal, you and you alone will be praised. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, to understand the second chapter of Philippians, we need to first look at chapter 1. See, in verses 12 through 26, Paul describes the fact that he's in prison, but he assures the, Philippians, the Philippian Christians that his imprisonment is actually served to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he gives that example by showing that he had an opportunity to witness to the imperial, the imperial guard. Now his emphasis for this is so that Christians in Philippi don't interpret Paul's imprisonment as evidence that God had abandoned him. Now also in chapter 1, Paul explains that there are two groups preaching God's word. One group was preaching out of their love for God, but the other was jealous of Paul and were openly opposing him by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ out of envy and strife. See, in doing so, they thought that intensifying the punishment that Paul was receiving in the Roman jail would cause some significant hardship and allow him to deplete his faith. But Paul informed them that although they, some of them were preaching wrong, he still was giving God joy. 
Because he let them know that there is nothing that they can do to affect his relationship with Christ and his view of who God is. And because he kept his eye on Jesus Christ, Paul let us know throughout his writings that no matter what goes on, he still has his joy. Now, once we get to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul instructs two groups in Philippi to work out their problems themselves and do so by considering the needs of the other person. And he does this by first laying out what Christ-like characteristics must follow, what Christ-like characteristics actually are. So Paul says this. In verse 2, he says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So what we see here in this, first, in this second verse, that Paul mentions three important things. He says, be like-minded, be, um, have the same love, and be in one in the spirit. So if we look at those key words, it's like-minded, same, and love. So what Paul is saying is live in unity. Then we get to verse 3, and it says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. So what we saw in verse 2 was live in unity, but now in verse 3, Paul's telling the Philippian church that they need to remain humble. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 4, it says this. Each of you should look not Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what Paul's saying in this verse is that we, as the body of believers, we should be selfless. So if you look at what Paul's saying, that how the believers should act in order for them to be Christ-minded, Christ-like, what Paul's saying in verse number 2 is they should live in unity. In verse number 3, he said they should be humble. And what Paul's saying in verse number 4 is that we as a body of believers, we should be selfless. So live in unity, be humble, and be selfish is what Paul is stating are Christ-like characteristics. But this is the interesting part. Look what Paul says in verse number five. He says, if your relationship, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset, that's the key word. He says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So what mindset was Paul talking about? Well, the, the mindset that he mentioned is what we just read in chapter, in verses two, three, and four, which is unity, being humble, and being selfless. So the Greek word for this word mindset has to do with our understanding and our attitude. So what Paul said to the Philippian church is how Jesus Christ thought about things is the same way that you and I are to think about things. So in your relationship with one another, whether you're serving alongside someone else, whether you're in your growth group, whether you're um, eating in Simpson Hall, everything that we should do, we should be thinking like Christ. Now, interestingly enough, verse 5 serves as a bridge between verses 1 through 4, which is how we as believers are supposed to think, and verses 6 through 8, which we'll see is now Christ's humility in action. Now, before we dive into verses 6 through 8, it's important to know this. See, many scholars believe that verses 6 through 11 is one of the first Christian hymns or the first Christian creed of the early church where they would take theological truths, 
write them down, and sing them in the church. So what Paul begins with in verse number six is this. He says, who being in the nature of God, let's stop right there. So what Paul's highlighting here is that there is one God. See, what we read in the book of Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, the Bible says, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. So what Paul's emphasizing here, that in order for us to be Christ-like, we have to uh, make sure that we understand who Christ actually is. So Paul begins this uh, particular verse by deep diving into the theology of who Jesus Christ is. So what Paul is saying that is that there is only one God who coexists eternally in three distinct persons. So what he's saying is God the Father may be different and distinct from God the Son, and who is also different and distinct from the Holy Spirit. But Paul makes it very clear, and Scripture makes it very clear, that each person is fully God, and they are co-equal with God. So there is only one God, but they are co-eternal, and they are distinct persons of the Godhead. Now, do know this, that the Son of God does not simply resemble God. But he is equal with the Father, and he's equal in every aspect of his deity, his majesty, and his character. See, Christ was and is and always will remain an equal member of the triune, God, of the triune Godhead. And it's important to know that he was truly God before he ever became a human person. So the bottom line is this. Jesus is equal with God because he is God. Jesus is God. But watch this, because now Paul goes on to say this in the, sixth, in the sixth verse. He says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, in this particular scripture, this Greek word, to be used to his own advantage, is difficult to interpret because it only appears here within the Bible. See, it means robbery or something to be seized by force. So what Paul is saying is Christ did not consider his equality with God, the fact that he was God, co-equal with God, and was with God before time began. Paul, I mean, Christ did not consider that equality with God something to use as his own advantage, even though he already possessed the power. He said this is not something to be exploited or seized for selfish gain. So what Paul's highlighting is how Jesus could have behaved, but then we see how Jesus actually lived. And this is how he lived. It starts in verse number 7 and 8. It says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. See, some translations says that this word... Um, he made himself nothing actually means he emptied himself. Therefore, the scripture sometimes read, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Now, in the Greek, scholars refer to this important statement of emptying himself as kenosis. 
And it refers to the doctrine of Christ self-emptying himself incarnation, in his incarnation. And to be clear, Jesus did not empty himself of his divine attributes. See, as we see in Scripture, it's obvious that Jesus possessed the divine power and the divine wisdom of God. As we read through the Bible, we see that Jesus healed, he delivered, and he saved. But through his incarnation, Jesus did not cease to be one with God, and he did not cease to be, and he did not become a lesser God. So when Jesus actually emptied himself, it's clear that he did not lose anything. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus emptied himself by actually taking on something, which the Bible says was the form of a servant. So the kenosis is actually the act of taking on a human nature with all its limitations, but we see that Jesus did not sin. Interestingly enough, the scripture goes on to say this, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of a cross. See, stepping out of glory and becoming a man was humbling for Jesus. And taking the nature of a servant was even more humbling. But instead of treating others as his servant, Jesus became a servant to the people he had created. But this is the awesome thing about Jesus. He went even further. The Bible says that he humbled himself to the extent of being willing to die like a common criminal on a cross. Jesus is the ultimate display of what humility is. See, the hymn points out in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, the stark contrast between the first Adam that we read in Genesis and the second Adam, who is Christ. See, the first Adam was created in the image of God, but desired to be higher by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in turn, because of his disobedience, he was brought lower, forced to work the soil, force of for survival, and he was ejected from the garden. But the second Adam, who is Jesus, who is Jesus, was created in the form of God, yet willingly went lower into a human form, which was subject to suffering and death. So what does this say about our King Jesus? It says this, Jesus is not only the preeminent example of humility of humanity he is also the preeminent example of humility know this no one started off so high and ended so low no one started off so rich and ended so poor and no one started off so sovereign and became so submissive than Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Church family, humility is a virtue, but kenosis is a practice. And the two always belong together. And while kenosis cannot happen without humility, Christ-like humility must always lead you and I 
to kenosis. We should put aside the privilege that we have so that we can bless others in the way that God blesses us. So again, verses 6 through 8 describe what Christ did for us. Again, highlighting what Christ, the way that Christ thinks. But now, as we look at verses 9 through 11, we see that this particular hymn begins to change tone and structure to describe what God did for Jesus. Now, two statements reveal the nature of God's action. The first is this, found in verse number 9. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. See, Jesus' obedience to humility is rewarded by the act of exaltation in which the Father raises the Son from the dead and elevates him to a place of honor. He who ended up so low, who was so poor, and became so submissive, submissive is now lifted up to glorious ranks. But the Bible goes on to say this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is done for one reason and one reason only, which is to the glory of God our Father. Church family, there will come a time when every creature in the universe will acknowledge Jesus is Lord. See, God's heavenly angels and his earthly church will honor Christ. But at the same time, demonic powers and people who oppose Christ and his church will bow down before our king. So in heavenly places and in humanity's earthly home and in the devil's domain below the earth, every knee shall proclaim and every tongue shall proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. So let me be clear. These verses do not mean that once the trumpet sound, Jesus comes back for his church and we are raised up to meet him for the, in the air. This does not mean that when that ha after this happens, that people will be able to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. This right here is the combination of worship for those who believe in Jesus and, and acknowledgement of his power and authority by those who did not believe. Church family, I don't know about you, but I'd rather acknowledge and proclaim the name of Jesus right now with fire in my belly than acknowledge the name of Jesus Christ from fire in eternity. From every rooftop, no matter where you go, from uh, Giant Eagle to, to, to Kennywood Park, we have to proclaim the name of Jesus. So, what did the Father do for the Son based off of his humility? Scripture lets us know that he exalted him to glory. He gave him authority. He provided additional meaning to his existence. And he increased his honor. But all this was done so that God can receive honor. See, Christ-like humility leaves behind the residue of God, not ourselves. And scripture tells us to relinquish our grasp on worldly power and embrace the role of a servant. 
Why? Because you will never satisfy the addiction to worldly power. Like all addictions, the more you get it, the more you're going to want it. And you'll be able to recognize it. You'll be able to recognize the addiction because the moment someone challenges your worldly power, that person will scream oppression. See, Christ-like humility helps us have an accurate view of who God is and who we are. And understanding and accepting the fact that we are not the captain of our own ship, but God is, will not only help us to avoid spiritual carnage, but our mere interaction with others will bring glory to the Father. And then we'll see that marriages are saved, relationships are reconciled, We'll experience more unity within our congregation. And the watching world will see that Jesus is in us. And then they'll ask, what must I do to be saved? So let me close with this, church family. Humility is sometimes painful. Swallowing our pride hurts. Sometimes putting the needs of others is not convenient for us. I'm the father of two uh, young adult children, and there's times in my discipline that my pride would rise up. And I would have to tell them, I want you to do this. And when they would ask why, because I said so. My mother said that to me for 52 years. Because I said so. But now I realize that some of my correction was actually done in pride. And there were times that I had to go back to my children and ask for forgiveness because I would say things out of anger and not, like, not out of a Christ-like characteristic. Pride divides, but humility unites. And God is calling each and every one of us to put away our privileges that God has blessed us with so that Christ-like humility can be a blessing to someone else. We have to get to the point that we realize it's not always about us. Everything we do, everything we say, everywhere we go has to be about Jesus. But in order for that to happen, we have to remain humble. We have to be able to shut our mouths. And the Bible tells us to be slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to anger. But in order for us to be slow to anger, we have to put away our pride. So pride and being humble sometimes hurt. It's not comfortable when someone's going in on you and you know you're right, you know they're wrong, and instead of chewing them out, you just nod your head and say, okay. But do know this. While humility can be painful, it was also painful for Jesus. The Bible lets us know that they spit on him, that they punched him. The Bible lets us know that they put that crown of thorns on his head. Jesus prayed the ultimate price for you and I, and his humility was painful. He was mocked. He was made fun of. 
They took his clothes. They ripped them up. But Jesus remained humble, and that humility led him to the cross. So please hear me when I say, I'm not suggesting that we as Christians, that we allow people to walk over us. There are some times when we simply, when we simply should stay away from some people. Humility is not being humiliated by folks. And there are some people we should just stay away with. Stay away from. There are some people who are toxic in our lives, so please hear me. I'm not saying humility is putting up with people's mess. But walking in Christ-like humility helps us discern when we need to stand strong or stay away and allow the Lord to fight our battles. So know this. Jesus' crucifixion didn't destroy him or degrade him. It exalted him. And in the same way, the pain and discomfort you and I will receive from being Christ-like will not destroy or degrade us. But it will position you to be exalted by God. It doesn't mean that your name will be in light. It doesn't mean you're going to be a social media influencer. And it doesn't mean your name's going to be in the paper every week. But it does mean that in due time, God will exalt you in the same manner he exalted his only begotten son. Humility is the currency of the kingdom of God. And the way to the, and, and the, way to the kingdom is not found by puffing ourselves up, by bragging about what we have. It's not about being prideful. And Christ-like humility may not lead to you being popular. But always remember that Christ-like humility is what God desires from each and every one of us. He's calling his children to be humble. And when we do that, we'll realize that the way up is down. Church family, please stand. I couldn't imagine walking with Jesus for a number of years, seeing him heal, deliver, and save people, and then watching our Lord and Savior being hung up on a cross. I couldn't imagine standing there and watching nails going to his hand, nails going into his feet, knowing that he was sinless. And looking at him hanging up on that cross knowing that he did it for me. That he took our place because we are guilty, but he was innocent. Christ-like humility is hard, but it's necessary. And at the end of the day, when the trumpet sounds, when Jesus is riding into this earth, he will exalt us to heavenly places where we will worship our king forever. So church family, here's our benediction for today. As you go about your life, look to scripture to find out what Christ-like humility is. 
knowing when we demonstrate it to the watching world, they will know that we are believers and not deceivers, but at the end of the day, it won't be you who are glorified. It will be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's sitting on the throne at the right hand of God, who is our ultimate salvation. Heavenly Father, I pray that each and every person will find Christ-like humility to be rewarding in their daily lives. I pray, God, that we will put away our privilege and we will put on humility. God, your word lets us know that humility is necessary, but kenosis is a practice. So as we leave this place today, help us to put on humility so that we can emulate Christ and so that we can be in relationship with one another. God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship. We thank you for this opportunity to hear your word today. Bless each and every one of us as we go. And let everyone say amen. God bless you, church family.